This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, joined as always by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. In today's episode, I'm going to enlist the help of a few fools to share the investing lessons that you, our listeners, have learned over the years. And Bro interviews Cheryl Garrett, founder of the Garrett Planning Network, about finding the right fee-only planner for your circumstances and how to become a financial planner. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. Well, a few episodes back, I asked Motley Fool analysts to share some of the stocks that taught them their biggest investing lessons. And then I asked you, our listeners, to submit your own lessons learned, and you responded. So I figured we might as well share those lessons with everyone. Our first listener lesson comes from Rich. And who better to read it than our own Rich here at The Motley Fool, Rich Griefner. Here's my lesson from a stock I own. Don't buy stocks based solely on what you hear. But it may be a good place to start. Classic Motley Fool disclaimer with some extra added on. It was in part thanks to David Gardner's RBI five stock samplers that led me to pick Mercado Libre when I did. I simply got tired of hearing how much it gained with each sampler it was a part of. So I followed up with my own research and then started a small position. Today, it is one of my top three holdings. Another reason why I'm grateful for The Motley Fool. Keep up the great work. You all are wonderful. Foolishly rich. Next up, we have a lesson learned by Dan. So I asked our own Dan, Dan Boyd, that is, to read it. In the mid-1990s, my wife and I, in addition to our retirement and other savings, had a modest brokerage account with a major firm. Rhymes with Beryl Finch. Our account was so robust that we were entitled to the grand sum of once yearly meeting with an ever-rotating cast of brand new brokers assigned to the smallest office in the far reaches of the building. In those meetings, I learned that the individual brokers we were assigned weren't very independent in their thought, but simply pushed generic recommendations that came via their corporate researchers. In this absence of any real advice, my hobby became researching stocks on our dial-up internet service and investing in some individual ones that had what I believed were good catalysts for growth. I often focused on stocks that were secondary in nature. Example, maybe not Apple, but a company that made component parts for them. And in that way, stumbled onto NVIDIA, ticker NVDA, which is a local graphic chip manufacturer in Silicon Valley. One night, our young kids were winding down to bedtime. After the normal routine of bath, etc., they were allowed some time on their respective Nintendo Game Boy devices. As they played their games, I thought to myself that Nintendo must be making a killing selling these because it seemed like every one of my children's friends, classmates, and teammates also had one. I began to research the Nintendo company, but ultimately came to the conclusion that their stock was already rather expensive as they were a household name. But in my wanderings, I began to research which companies supplied parts for Nintendo's games, specifically the Game Boy, as it was amongst the most advanced at that time. I discovered that NVIDIA supplied the graphic chips that powered the Game Boy experience, and they also were making strides in supplying the same for computers and cell phones, which at that time were just beginning to become mainstream. When diving a little deeper into NVIDIA, I saw a company that looked to be doing many things right, but with a stock price that I felt didn't reflect or 
people hadn't noticed its true value. In the end, I invested money in NVIDIA stock, and within short order, it skyrocketed, split, and skyrocketed again as people began to take notice. When I mentioned it to our broker the following year, he immediately zeroed in on our impressive gains while admitting he had no idea what NVIDIA was. When I told him, he suddenly became very stern, however, and he gingerly warned me that I could get into serious trouble if someone I knew was working for the company and was feeding me insider information. I assured him I knew no one who worked for NVIDIA and that my only insiders weren't even 10 years old yet. To this day, we have always maintained a position of some sort in NVDA, once cashing out to help purchase a home. And the next time I saw the same broker, he remembered me as the NVIDIA guy and told me he had been recommending the stock to other clients. What I learned. If you're investing in individual stocks, there is no substitute for doing your own research. Understand the business, develop your own thesis, and look for catalysts that you believe will lead to good things for a company. Just because brokers do that work as their full-time job doesn't mean they are good or experienced at it. The level of service you will get depends on how much money you have or how much you are paying for that service. In the end, find someone who you mesh with if you are going to be using their advice. Thanks, Dan Anderson. Our next listener lesson comes from Steve B. And of course, I had to ask our own Steve B, Steve Broido, that is, to read it. Back around 2003, I transferred an old 401k to an IRA with a financial planner. It represented about 10% of my total retirement savings. One of the investments recommended by the planner was an unlisted REIT. It held a mixture of residential and commercial properties. It was paying a 5% dividend at the time, and it was being run by a group that had successfully run and ultimately sold off one or more such funds in the past. I only vaguely understood how REITs work, and it sounded like the equivalent of a pre-IPO kind of opportunity. The drawback was that the shares were liquid since they were not listed on any exchange. The expectation was that the fund would have a liquidity event, buyout or exchange listing, in about five years. Real estate would also diversify my portfolio. Well, the real estate market crumbled and the shares dropped significantly. The REIT suspended their share buyback plan. It canceled the dividend. The first time the fund was required to provide an estimated NAV, it had gone from $10 down to about $4. Also, since the market was crushed, there were no feasible liquidity exit strategies. I received a couple of buyout offers from some bottom feeders, about a dollar a share. Spin forward to today, 15 plus years into a five-year investment. Shares were recently valued at $3.19 by the REIT. The dividend has been reinstated at about 5% of the greatly reduced value. They spun off a bunch of poorly performing properties into another REIT, now estimated at 25 cents a share, no dividends. However, they had a plan for a liquidity event. They did a 1 for 10 reverse split to bring the price up to a marketable $30 per share range and were able to list on the New York Stock Exchange this week. It opened at about $24 and is trading between $24 and $25 right now. I stand to have a 75% loss, assuming I unload the shares, after 15 years instead of 5 years. The lesson here is to never invest in something you don't understand. I thought I understood mutual funds pretty well and assumed that that was enough to branch out into a REIT. 
I had no idea how REITs, and especially unlisted REITs, really worked, and I didn't read the prospectus. I didn't research the company or the principles. Seeing that entry in my brokerage statements keeps the lesson fresh in my mind. I am fortunate enough that this mistake was large enough to hurt, but small enough to be negligible at this point. By the way, I've also bought some stocks that performed almost as bad, and many that have outperformed the market. Thanks, fools. But I do not regret any of the buys on the losers. I understood the companies better, and sometimes my conclusions were just wrong. But I don't blindly buy into an opportunity I don't understand with the expectation of striking it rich. And our last listener lesson comes from PT. We don't have a PT at The Motley Fool. But we do have a JP, JP Bennett. It was February 2018 and Chipotle was all over the news. I was a longtime fan of the food and was never scared. After all, I did eat my way through rural India at one point. So when I pulled up to a Chipotle in Fort Collins, Colorado and saw a liner on the corner, I was a bit surprised. A few days later in Salt Lake City, I saw another line out the door of a Chipotle. A few days later, you guessed it. The line in Grand Junction, Colorado was out the door. I bought five shares at $250 and today it's just shy of $2,000. Lesson number one, boots on the ground research matters. Wall Street is not Main Street. Lesson number two, after it more than tripled, I sold two shares. And it's now about a seven bagger. Let your winners run high. Thanks, David Gardner. Thanks to all of our listeners who submitted their investing lessons. As always, Bro is still waiting for you to send your holiday traditions. Longtime listeners know that we think even the most avid do-it-yourselfers might benefit from hiring a fee-only financial planner every once in a while, just to get an objective second opinion and to make sure you have all your bases covered. And when we've offered that suggestion, we also often point out that one place to find a fee-only planner is the Garrett Planning Network. Well, today we're fortunate to be able to chat with Cheryl Garrett herself, who founded the network back in 2000 and is regularly recognized by industry organizations and publications as one of the most innovative and influential members of the financial services profession. She's also an author of or a contributor to more than a dozen books, has testified before Congress, and has worked with the House Subcommittee on Financial Services. Cheryl, welcome to Motley Fool Answers. My delight to be here. So let's start with the story of how you founded the Garrett Planning Network. Once upon a time, a man longer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, actually, I started, I was a certified financial planner working with individual clients. And I started out, you know, the traditional ways. My first job in the industry was with IDS, now called Ameriprise. And I just hated the concept of having to sell a product. Um, And so I kind of bounced around in the, in financial planning, financial advice, trying to find what would fit for me and, and what I felt the need for, you know, what I would want if I were the consumer was I would want to go be able to go in and say, here's what I want going on or what I've got going on. Here's my questions. I want you to tell me what you would do you know, as an expert, but I didn't want to go control over to somebody. So I started offering my services on an hourly basis, you know, like charging for my time. Mm -hmm. I didn't sell any products. I sold time and advice. And lo and behold, people thought it made sense. (laughs) They liked it. You know, if you build it, they will come kind of thing. Right. 
And in a matter of about one year, my business had exploded. Um, I was getting calls from all over my community, um, referrals from other financial advisors who didn't want to work with somebody who was a, quote, do-it-yourselfer, you know, your community as the Motley mm-hmm. Fool. Yeah, That's the kind of people I like to talk to. I like to deal with people who don't want to bury their head in the sand. Um, I want, I enjoy talking to people who say, what do you think about this? Or, um, you know, would that make sense for me? And I found that there was a whole lot of people out there that needed somebody like me who said, you know, we don't want to turn over control. We just want somebody who can help us, man, you know, that spends more time at this, maybe like all their time um, and does this full time and has a lot of training um, and can give me some objective advice from the outside to say, you know, given your circumstances and what you're trying to accomplish, is that the most efficient way to get there? And having some separate eyes to look at it and potentially ask some, some pressing questions that maybe haven't been thought of, um, that was really uh, critical. And so I just said, I want to build a kind of advisory shop that would fit a person like me. And within about 12 months, I was getting as many telephone calls from financial planners around the country as I was from um, people in my community saying, I need financial advice. Or can, you know, I talked to somebody at work and he said that he talked to you about what we should do with our new 401k options. So these were like, you know, hey, I've got a question. What do I do? Call Cheryl. You know, it was so simple. But in the olden days, in my prior incarnation as a wealth manager, somebody might say, oh, you know, I've got some questions about my 401k. If they said, call Cheryl, my minimum then, or our our firm's minimum, was $4,000 a year. Hmm. So that is insane for some guy who wants to have feedback about his 401k options. Right. I often say that I think once every five to 10 years is is a Mm -hmm. good guideline. Um, and certainly before you make a, a major financial decision, especially as you get closer to retirement, it's helpful Definitely. to know the maybe that you are considering everything yeah. in terms of Social Security, Medicare, withdrawal rates, Roth versus mm-hmm. traditional. Where do you take the money? I mean, there's so much to know. It would make sense exactly. to, to just pay someone some money. Exactly. Say, All right. Am I making the right decisions? Mm-hmm. Is there anything I'm missing? One of the biggest things is when you have something going on in your life, something changes you know, a job opportunity, you're going to relocate or you're wanting to relocate, um, a change in your relationship. You get married, you lose a spouse, you get divorced. Um, Anytime there's a change in your world, your life, oftentimes that is a really good time to stop and take account of, you know, where you're at. So I'm, you know? I'm sure many people listening to this will have a range of needs. You know, some people might uh-huh. like the idea of, you know, give me almost the whole kit and caboodle, retirement planning, college yeah. planning, insurance analysis, maybe yeah. even maybe whatever even do asset I need. Right. Some mm-hmm. people might just have a single question. Um, so yeah. how, how should people find the right financial planner for what they're looking for? Mm-hmm. Oh, great question. And it's not easy, folks. So hang on with me as I explain how I go through it. First of all, a little lecture from the soapbox. Finding an advisor 
or listening to advice, you know, presume that when you find one, this would be somebody you would listen to, <laughs> okay, kind of like a doctor or whatever. When you find one, you're going to go to them and listen to their advice. So don't shortcut yourself. You're making a big investment. And, you know, like if you had some health issues, you're going to do some research on a physician or, you know, who's available um, in your area, in your insurance plan. How are they rated? What kind of feedback do they have? Do they have the hours you're looking for, et cetera? Um, spend that kind of time in stealth mode as you're doing a search for financial advisors and do Google searches or however you want to. You can use our organization as one of them. I, I recommend it. Uh, <laughs> you know, I know that sounds surprising. Um, one of the reasons I recommend our organization, one of the reasons I started it, is I wanted a place for advisors who provided time-based billing. You know, they charge by the hour or for the time they uh, have, rather than the amount of money that you turn over for them to manage or the amount of commissions that they can make off of selling insurance or investments. We sell time and advice. Um, so I'm a big fan of that. That's a form of fee-only compensation. Um, so back to my, st uh, my soapbox. First off, it's a big decision. Don't rush it. I've been an expert witness on the other side, um, working um, on behalf of investors who've been harmed by financial advisors, and there's not very many protections in the law. If you do not work with a fiduciary, bottom line is the buck stops with you. You are 100% responsible for whatever a salesperson does to you or encourages you to do or whatever. Right. And so definitely work with a fiduciary. And one way to know if they, by law, must meet the definition of a fiduciary of, a, of an investment advisor, that was from the 40 Act, the, Red, the Advisors Act of 1940. If someone is a registered investment advisor, they are a fiduciary by law. People want to get advice from somebody they trust and rely upon. That's what we all do. But yet, there's a, the majority of advisors we can't rely and trust upon because they're salespeople. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with salespeople. It's just that in the law of investment advisors, those individuals that are in the salespeople department are not fiduciaries. I've often said that, you know, you use something like Garrett Planning Network, NAPFA, find three to five people that look like they might suit your needs mm -hmm. um, and then have, a, generally, they will have, offer a free session, a free get acquainted meeting, yeah. I should yeah. say. So when you're mm -hmm. talking to potential event, uh, planners, what are some important questions to ask when interviewing yeah. them? Thanks for that. Um, I, I suggest pretty much the same thing. Um, I like a certified financial planner. I want a fiduciary and I want fee only. Okay. And that helps narrow down your list a lot, but not, not immensely, but a lot. Um, and NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors, napfa.org, 
is a great spot. Most or, or many of our members are also NAPFA members. I'm a longtime member. Um, and it's the large group of fee-only advisors. The XY Planning Network is also an organization kind of like the Garrett Planning Network. Um, they, they cater to the XY um, community. Um, and um, the planners um, oftentimes are XY themselves or millennials. And uh, the last one, the largest one, would be the CFP board. Um, and that I wouldn't start there, um, but uh, it's not a, not a bad place to start. So NAPFA, our organization, um, you know, any of the others I mentioned, and do talk to at least three people. So we at the full have been mentioning the Garrett Planning Network for years. And uh, after we'd mentioned it, I often hear from people and say, you know, I, I love the idea, but I, I check the website and no one's in my area. But nowadays, especially since the pandemic, is it possible to work with a financial mm-hmm. planner who doesn't even live in your town or maybe not even in your state? Yes. Um, I kind of like did a slow yes. The reason I hesitate a bit is I would say it's probably best to find somebody in your state, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily. And the reason I say that simply is because of the regulations of investment advisors. Um, Most of us are state registered. And so if you live in my state, I can work with you. (laughs) You know, we might be all the way on the other ends of the state, but I'm already registered in your state. If let's say like when I lived in Kansas City, one would want to be registered in Kansas and Missouri, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that'll happen. But yeah, I would say start with somebody in your state, but don't worry about the locale. I know, you know, I worked in Kansas City when I was working with individual clients, um, and most of my clients came from about a twenty-minute drive of my office even though Kansas City metro area is about 1.7 million, they were all coming from the same area for the most part. Mm -hmm. But um, after a while, I started working with my clients over the telephone. This is prior to Zoom, (laughs) you know, like a 19 or maybe 2000, 2005 timeframe. So we used the phone and people just said, this is so convenient. I also have a questionnaire on our website that I would encourage people to use to ask questions of advisors. It's generic. You can, you can use it to send to people via email and just email it back to you. No calls, <laughs> nothing like that. Just fill out this form and send it back to me mm-hmm. um, and get their feedback. That would be something that would be helpful. Or they can use that questionnaire. It's called the Financial Advisor Interview Questionnaire. They can use that questionnaire as like a cheat sheet. So like these are some questions that Cheryl would find, want to ask or have answered by an advisor that you're interviewing. So when you are calling and talking to at least three different people, um, and I and I do like the the Zoom idea. Now, so you know you can be convenient at your office or at your home, wherever's best. Maybe your spouse, you can't be there at the same time, but you could dial in at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's just more convenient, less traffic issues. So darn near everybody if not everyone in our network does work virtually with clients now, um, even before COVID. (laughs) And uh, we're finding that it's extremely popular. It does, I found, it does tend to keep the meeting a little tighter 
little more efficient. Mm -hmm. Uh, People show up on time. We get down to business faster. And, you know, when you're billing for time, that matters. And so, um, you know, a lot of times people like to come in maybe once in a while, and then we would do our interim meetings over the phone. So, you know, once you have a relationship established, or even before, but, um, you know, you want to be able to talk to somebody over the phone. And the reason I like people when they're searching for an advisor to talk to more than one is I want you to find out if you can talk to them. Visit, you know, do they listen? Or are they busy asking you questions and writing stuff down? I mean, I don't, I don't want somebody just be gathering data from me. You know, what's your name? What's your address? What do you want to accomplish in life? that's a robot, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I want to talk and see if I connect to the human being that I'm going to share my fears and my aspirations and my concerns and my opportunities and all that kind of stuff with. So the most important thing of an advisor, I said, I want a CFP. I want a fee only fiduciary. But after that, I want somebody that I can talk to and that listens and hears me. Mm-hmm. And that might that might take a different kind of conversation than, well, what's your name? What do you want to do? What's your goal? Retirement, you know, that's if, if somebody starts out like that, you might as well end the call and just move on. <laughs> you know? Final question. Every once in a while, we get questions from readers or listeners who have an interest in becoming financial planners. So what suggestions mm-hmm. do you have for people interested in entering the field? I love you. (laughs) That's me. That's me 30 years ago. Um, No, actually longer than that. Um, But yes, that's, that's what most financial planners, we all felt the same way at one point because financial planning, financial advice, it didn't exist 30 some years ago, you know? And so, um, I think it's fabulous. I love do-it-yourselfers and people who love to get into this field. Um, so, you know, so I'm I'm 59. So you know, anybody around my age or older, you had to make a career change to come into this field. I was 24 when I started in this field. That was like unheard of. So anybody older than me changed careers, just like some of the listeners. And I think it's phenomenal. This is one of the very best career fields to be in, in my imagination. We help people. We get to do something that matters. It actually makes a difference in people's lives. And it feels good. I would, if you haven't thought about it, check into the CFP program, the Certified Financial Planner Program. And there are colleges and universities, over 200 around the country, that have certificate programs. And there are virtual programs. So you can do the CFP program and take a university virtual certificate program. One of the things that I found about the people who have come and joined the um, planning network as financial advisors, they were all self-taught for the most part um, initially. They were do-it-yourselfers. They have always been do-it-yourselfers when it comes to personal finance. And what they recognized was there's a lot more they wanted to learn. And, you know, that's where a lot of us come from. So check out the Certified Financial Planner Program through the College for Financial Planning 
or you can just go straight to the CFP board website and they have a listing of all of the um, college or certificate programs available through colleges and universities around the country. Actually, there may be closer to 300 than 200 programs. So that would be a great way to go, a way to start. And you may just get into one program. They do have the Fundamentals of Financial Planning, which is a pair of paraplanner, kind of like a paralegal, someone who assists a a lawyer, Um, so someone who assists a financial planner. Um, So the the very first course of the CFP curriculum is the paraplanner course, and that gives you a pretty holistic um, but but very, uh, not deep, um, look at the whole program. And uh, one of my colleagues in the Garrett Planning Network, my right-hand man, Justin Nichols, has been teaching that 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 course at the uh, Kansas State University for a number of years and just loves it. Um, so you know, check out a, a a course for the certificate program in your area, or you know, it might be an hour or two away at a nearby university. Talk to the the instructor. It oftentimes is a professional financial advisor who also teaches. If you would like to talk to a professional, uh, you know, a teacher, a professor, we have a few that are members. You can email us at staff at garrettplanningnetwork.com, and that'll come to our entire team. If you want to know names of of, um, teachers of the CFP program, just to chat with them, we'd be happy to put you in touch. But a lot of folks um, enjoy teaching, and that's actually... Um, a great number of our of advisors come from a teaching or a consultative background. And then there's a whole lot that come from a more analytical or IT background, engineering types. Those are the two biggest areas that we see. There's also a couple of outstanding books. The first author I recommend is Jeff Ratner, R-A-T-T-I-N-E-R. And anything he's written on getting started in financial planning, are outstanding references. He's taught um, um, in um, the university setting and the CFP preparatory exam uh, world for probably 20 years. Um, and so he's an, uh, an excellent resource to go to. So dear listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the Garrett Planning Network and download a free financial advisor interview questionnaire, visit garrettplanningnetwork.com. That's Garrett with two R's and two T's. Cheryl, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. It's time for Answers, Answers. And this week's question comes from Juan. I have a question about I-bonds. One possible way to use them in the short term are like very high yielding one-year CDs. Here's my reasoning. Currently, the fixed rate is 0% and variable rate is over 7%, which will last for six months, yielding a composite rate of 7%. After six months, the variable rate can change. And the worst case scenario is that the composite rate goes to zero. Hence, after a year, the worst possible effective return is over 3.5%. After a year, the bonds can be redeemed and even taking off the last three months of interest which is the worst case scenario, are worth nothing anyways, which still means an effective return of over 3.5%. Is there something wrong in my logic or some key piece of information I'm missing here? 
Sometimes a listener has a question and sometimes a listener already understands something really well and they just wanna make sure they're not missing something. And this question from Juan falls into that latter category. Juan is asking about Series I savings bonds from Uncle Sam, most commonly known as I-bonds. The I stands for inflation because the interest rate on these bonds is based on two components. The first is a fixed rate, which since May of 2020 is a big fat zero. And if you buy today, that won't change as long as you own the bond. But the second component is based on the consumer price index and adjusts every six months with the new rates announced each May and November. And if you go to treasurydirect.gov, which is where you go to buy I-bonds, you'll see the current annual rate is an eye-popping 7.12%, the second highest rate since I-bonds were first issued in 1998. However, that 7.12% is a little bit misleading because it's actually 3.56% for the next six months, and you'd only earn 7.12% for the year if inflation is exactly the same when the Treasury Department does the next adjustment in May of 2022. Of course, this is extremely unlikely. Inflation could be higher or it could be lower, but it likely won't be exactly the same. So you likely won't earn exactly 7.12% over the next year. But as Juan points out, this can still be a great deal. The interest rate on I-bonds could never fall below zero. So even if inflation, the inflation rate plummets between now and the next adjustment, which by the way, no one is expecting, you'll still earn at least 3.56% over the year, which these days is pretty darn good since it's nearly impossible to get a CD paying even 1%. Now you have to own I-bonds for at least one year, and if you redeem before five years, you'll pay a penalty of three months worth of interest, which is another point that Juan is making. Uh, some other benefits to consider, you can choose to not pay taxes on I-bonds until you redeem them. And like all treasury bonds, I-bonds are free from state and local taxes. Also, you won't pay any taxes if you use the proceeds to pay for qualified higher education expenses. Now this benefit begins to phase out for single taxpayers with modified adjusted gross incomes above $83,200 and married taxpayers with MAGIs of $124,800. Now, a couple of downsides. The amount you can invest in I-bonds is limited to $10,000 per person per year with an additional $5,000 if you use your tax refund to buy I-bonds. Also, if inflation does eventually level off and it goes back to where we were a couple of years ago, then I-bonds won't look nearly as good. So to answer Juan's question, which was whether someone could use I-bonds as a higher yielding one-year CD, the answer is yes, as long as you're cool with paying the penalty of three months interest for redeeming before five years. To learn more about I-bonds and really any other type of bond issued by Uncle Sam, visit treasurydirect.gov. Well, that's the show. It's edited inflatingly by Rick Engdahl. Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody. Bye.